Welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Anderson, and today on the show, we are joined by Ryan Banta, who is the Parkway Central High School girls head track and field coach from 2003 to the present day. Ryan has yielded 84 school records over his time at Parkway Central High. He's written a book, Sprinter's Compendium, which is one of the most comprehensive uh, works of literature on the topic of sprinting, and he has done an amazing job establishing uh, a culture of excellence at Parkway High. And I really wanted to get him on today to just give his overall thoughts on the culture that he's built there, speed, and how he's cultivated it, and some of his insights into uh, kids today and the way they uh, exist in the modern world. This was an incredible conversation. I really enjoyed Ryan's perspective on this. And uh, it was honestly one of the longer episodes that I've had to this point, and it really uh, flowed beautifully, I thought. Uh, big thanks to Ryan for coming on the show on a weekend with kids to chat about all things uh, speed and youth athlete development. Without further ado, let's get to it. Here's Ryan. Ryan, thank you so much, man, for joining the show. Um, really appreciate the time. I know we've been trying to set this up for a couple of weeks, and uh uh, we'll blame me on this one for uh, for having some last minute things pop up. So thanks a lot for joining. No problem, Jack. I appreciate being here, and you know, no worries on the delay. It kind of spreads out that information a little bit. You know, I had a number of podcasts I was doing the rounds on, and so this should be good because it's given us a little bit of space and to kind of have people ponder some of the ideas I've discussed previously. Awesome, awesome. Now uh, let's dive right into this. Um, Obviously, you have a you know long history of of success with uh, with track at the high school level, and I'm just curious as someone myself who I really enjoy speed and I teach it on a I would say like a level that's below that in the sense that you know I'm still a weight room guy to a large extent. I've gotten into sprinting over the last couple of years. Um, I think I do a good job with a few kids here and there, but if we're talking specifically track, uh, and you're inheriting like a group of freshmen coming in or eighth grade or whatever it may be. Where are you starting with them and kind of like what's your thought process as, as you get them accustomed to uh, your system? Well, the first thing is, is I got to know what they are, you know. So when I begin a track and field season, I look at it like Chris Mahonica Kwanzaa, you know. I want to open up the presence. I want to know what I got in my program. I want to know the type of athletes I have, the kids I've got. And so we take them through a battery of tests to kind of figure out like, where are they? You know, you probably, people who are listening to this have probably seen how people graphically represent um, potential with a radar graph, you know, so you've got like these different events and you kind of spider web their abilities based on that graphic. So for me, what I found to be probably the best situation is to run them through a battery of tests that are kind of general in purpose. Then through the first two weeks, we get into the specifics of, okay, this is how you hold the javelin. This is how you approach the high jump. This is how you throw the shot with the discus. And all of our new kids do everything everything and the only kids that probably don't do all of that stuff would be a kid that I know is a true blue thrower because we don't want them to hurdle and make them put them in a compromised position we don't want them to do a mile test because they're frankly never going to run the mile but outside of that every kid in my program does all of those different things so we'll do a standing long jump five repeat bounds flying 30 standing 30 overhead, backwards shot put toss, softball and basketball toss for javelin. We will make them go through a progression of can you walk on your hands? Can you do a handstand? Can you do a cartwheel? Can you do a backflip? Um, and we'll do a hurdle skill challenge, a 
45 second test. And we don't do all this on the same day, but we take them through this whole process throughout the week. And then as we get into week, the end of week one and the beginning of week two, we make sure that we see if anyone has a natural ability to release a discus, throw a jab, approach the high jump and things like that. Because for me, my job first and foremost is to provide them the best training. But I can't provide them the best training for them if I don't test. So the test has to happen early for these things that are very low stress, probably outside of the mile. Then later on, we will address time trialing and things like that as we get into more specifics once we've kind of put these kids in a particular envelope box, if you will. And we also, though, make sure that we're paying attention to their progress as we move throughout the season. And then even my, not my new kids, but my returning kids will do all of the tests as well because sometimes there's a physical improvement, there's a biological, neurological awakening where they all of a sudden go, oh, okay, that, that switch is flipped and they know they can now hit that position in, in the high jump. They know they can hit that position with the trail leg and the hurdles. And so we catch kids like that all the time, which disappointingly, this year specifically, I had three girls who I caught that were going to be very, very good in the hurdles who had never hurdled before, and they're returning kids. And that's an event where a lot of people don't put their best kids. I want to put my best kids if they can hurt because that means they're just that much more dangerous. So that's kind of the process that I first implement to figure out where I'm going to go with them. And we can talk more about then what do I do? Yeah. Um, just on a side note with that, I find that very, uh, really interesting. Um, and this is just my lack of knowledge of track. Like I just wouldn't have guessed something like that, which is really cool. Now, do you find that the kids um, tend to gravitate towards what they're good at? Or how does, that, how does that kind of work with their mindset? Like does a kid come in like, I'm going to be, you know, a sprinter and all of a sudden you find they might be good at three or four other events that might not be what they're, they're looking for. Do you find they gravitate toward it? What's kind of that dynamic like? Well, early on, that was a hard sell. So there were some situations where kids are like, this is what I am. This is the events that I do, all this kind of stuff. And I always tell coaches, it takes about five years to kind of really know what type of program you have, your advantages, your disadvantages, because you got to get all the old you know, kind of dead wood out of your program. And not to say that those kids don't help along that process. Many do. Many gravitate to whatever you say and do whatever you ask and are excited that you've implemented this. But there's always going to be a few that don't. And now that I'm in my 19th season, that problem isn't a big deal because I think that the athletes, especially once they've competed in a couple meets, realize that we are genuinely trying to place them in a position where they can be the most successful. So for example, a few years back, I had a young lady who was probably the best hundred meter girl in her grade, minus the girl that was on the soccer team, who's probably the fastest girl we've ever had in our school. But soccer and, and track and field in Missouri are in the same season for females. Big problem when you're at an affluent school like I am because the soccer coach and I are competing for the same kids and there's always drama about that as much as we <laughs> and we're right across the hall from each other we teach the same subject you know it just how these things work out but so this particular girl was not one of those soccer players but she was like the fastest girl in the 100 she also had to be the fastest girl in the 200 for grade but if you saw her and you know as a strength and conditioning person you see somebody clean and you're like you see their numbers but their shapes look like crap 
that should inform you on, okay, where do I need to take this? What should I prescribe in the weight room that's safe? Do I need to take this athlete a few steps backwards? Well, for this young lady, she was a scooter. She skitter scattered around. She didn't have a great um, standing 30, but could really fly on a flying 30. Turned out by the time she was a senior, she was the number one 800 meter runner in the state of Missouri. So she could have been the best 100 meter girl in my school and looked like a hot mess and maybe never really got a lot better. But because of experience and then testing and then the willingness of her teammates around her to move up and down events, she was willing to be brave and do that as well. And sure enough, you know, she ended up being one of the best girls in the state of Missouri ever in the 800 is now a division one college track and field athlete. And so there is hesitation, but the benefits of constantly going back into the arena, because one of the things, Jack, that we have to remember is that every new athlete we come across, every new athlete that we coach, we have to reteach those things. And so if you back away from that culturally, you know, culture is not on autopilot. Like once you step away from some of those things, it will have an effect and you have to lean in. You have to do it because the athletes themselves will model it as long as you're leading it through that expectation and it's your desire that you're beating the drum saying, this is what we're going to do. And so thankfully in our program, every girl that's a sprinter runs the hundred to the 400. Every girl that's a distance runner runs the 400 to the 3,200 at some point during their time in, in the season or in their career. And then we want them to try to throw, we want them to jump, a lot of times your best athlete is just good at everything so we need to know what those things are as I mentioned before and I've had girls that are you know on my sprint relays that are our best shot putter you know because they just have those skills and so they are open to hey I know that if I'm really good at this coach Panta and my teammates are going to support this and more importantly culturally there's no owning of an event you know so like this girl used to be the best 100 meter runner but then seven other girls come in and they're better. Well, she's either going to get better or she's going to need to move to another event to figure out where she can make an impact in our program to be a part of our team. So you're really leaving no stone, stone unturned. I like this generalist kind of approach to things, allowing them to, to try different stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm really on board this uh, kind of self-discovery and figuring out what you're good at and, and trying things that you may not be good at and stuff like that. And it sounds like you're providing these opportunities um, particularly for people at a young age, which to me is just enormous as you get either closer to specializing or just you transition out of being an athlete and you just move into an everyday, you know, just everyday life. Correct. Well, and, and we want to keep things fresh. We want to keep things interesting. And so having a little bit of that self-discovery and autonomy of your performances will decide where you go is much more empowering than feeling as if, well, coach is just forcing me to do this because this is what coach likes. And it took me a long time to kind of figure that out, you know, through my process as a coach. Originally, all I cared about was sprints. Then all I cared about was the track part of it. And now I care about track and field and that all my assistants have good athletes and that all my athletes, you know, are as best we can without a genome test, putting them where they best can succeed and, and be a good athlete in our program. And we use time trials and competitive trials and the mixing of those different events and cycling through all of those events to give everybody a chance. 
to prove that at the end of the year, they're the person that gets one of those two individual event spots or one of those four or six because you got anchor, you know, you got your alternative athletes on the relays. I look at it like this, like we're track and field. So we need to be able to do all that, just like your strength and conditioning, where I would argue that, you know, like a distance coach would focus way too much on distance and volume. A field coach would focus only on the field and have no idea what the majority of the events are doing. A strength and conditioning coach oftentimes focuses on the strength part and not on the conditioning part. You know, I joke that I'm Catholic with a little C. I think most strength and conditioning coaches are conditioning coaches with a little C. The conditioning part doesn't nearly matter as all these acronym muscle and strength organizations that they want to be a part of to prove that they can move weight properly. You know, but the point is, is that if you're at a college level or a high school level, and that is your job, it's really important to be pretty much equal parts, both S&C, equal parts, both track and field. Yeah. And I, you know, just to touch back on talking about you doing the time trials, I know that's obviously a thing that's pretty in vogue now. I think everybody understands that. Like we want to have numbers for the kids that give tangible feedback, but the way you put it really made me think, I'm like, Oh, not only are we promoting like competition and good intent and practice, but we're also giving them more opportunities to see maybe this is why you're not doing this event. Like it's not just a one-off thing where maybe you just didn't perform well in your, in your meet or something like that. And that's why we're going to move you to something else. It's, weeks of data and feedback and understanding that maybe this is why you're not going to be in this event now, you know? Yeah, correct. And then circling back to that too. And one of the things that, and if they are going to be good at these other events, you've got to create space in your training to allow that to happen. I know that one of my compatriots is very popular who likes to feed certain animals of the feline nature. <laughs> you know, he'll give his, he'll give his kids days off for the sprinters. I cannot do that culturally because that would really create a problem amongst my program um, and amongst my coaches. And the reason why is that I also have to facilitate my assistant coaches by sharing those really talented kids in other spots. So, for example, we had a young lady who graduated in 2019, and she's the number one point scorer in our school's history for varsity points. And part of the reason why that is, is because she was so multi-talented. She was a decent gymnast in high school, um, but kind of had some goofy running mechanics and was more long than she was frequent orientated as a sprinter. But um, when she first came out, we thought, okay, probably pole vault. Well, then she tested out of the room in the flying 30 meters, not the, not the you know, standing one. She tested out of the room in our 400-meter time trial and ran the fastest time we've ever had for a freshman in a 400-meter time trial. She also had the best standing long jump ever. Well, depending on what your bias is as a coach, you'd probably take that kid and only do the one thing that they can do. So if it was me, the kid would run the 400. If it was Tony, the kid would run the 100 and 200 pretty much exclusively. If it was my jumps coach, they'd only jump and we'd probably blow them up by doing too much plyometrics. But instead, what we did is as a staff, we sat down and laid out a specific plan for that athlete. And um, I've got charts and stuff like that. I got that article that's coming up in Simply Faster where I kind of talk about her and I highlight some of her progress. But, you know, it wasn't like she was great at one of those things right away. And greedy coaches that want to just have this kid be an instant qualifier for state, an instant contributor, and, and just wants to take them for themselves, which is who I was 
when I first started coaching, I never even had her run the 400 when I first started. She just run the one and the two, and that would be it because I was so greedy and unwilling to share. But now that I've evolved as a coach, I realized that this kid could be good at a lot of things. So in our weekly schedule, if we would have a day off, I wouldn't be able to facilitate the jumps, the sprints, the more enduring quality workouts, the weight room. You know, she could have been a great high jumper, but she just had too much on her plate. She could have been a great hurdler. Um, so she ended up her senior year being second in the state of Missouri in the long jump, broke our school record, which had been around since the 1980s, um, was our second school, uh, second place finisher uh, in our third place finisher in the triple jump, second all time in school history for us in the triple jump, third all time in the 400 and was third at the state championship in the 400 as well. Without her, we don't finish top three at the state championship. We might not even bring home a trophy. And if I was selfish, she might have been really good at one or two things, but she wouldn't be the college, you know, coach's dream where you could say, hey, maybe I make this kid a multi-eventer. Maybe, you know, once I get her and I can really teach her the technical complexities of the long jump, she'll really fly. And so that made her much more marketable as well. So for me, I feel like it's my job to make those really talented kids marketable by making them look like they're Swiss Army Knives like they can do a whole bunch of different things. And then the college coach might find that attractive, but most importantly, probably feels like, ooh, that's a good overall athlete. Once I, quote unquote, specialize them, you know, I can really get something out of them. Yeah, and so, that's, a, that's what, sorry to cut in. That's, that's what I want to ask you about. Because um, to me, I, I don't, I've always kind of thought of that with like, you know, if you have someone that's extremely good at sprinting, for example, I definitely have a bit of that mindset. It's like, well, why would I take them away from, something they're really good at. But I think you can counterpoint it. Like you're saying here, we're probably preventing burnout in a lot of ways by giving them different opportunities. And is it really that important that they specialize at any point in high school? Maybe not, you know, from what you're telling me here. Correct. And, you, and the hope is, is that if you make it fun and you keep it interesting for them, and again, the athlete has to be on board for that too. You know, like one of the things that with this young lady that uh, I coached, I had talked to her about, man, what if, what if we decided to do the 300 hurdles? You might be able to win the state title in that. And she's like, I just, at this point, I have so much on my plate. You know, I want to break the school record in the long jump. I want to go after the triple jump record. I'm running the 400. She's like, I don't know that my shins, because she always had issues with her shins, nothing terrible. We never had any stress fractures or anything like that. But it was always something that we had to kind of, you know, make sure we were paying attention to her loading you know, and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I listened. But most importantly, though, when they're with you for four years, it's also kind of exciting because it's like, oh, well, now I can be good at something else. And now I might be able to be good at something else because I've developed some of the biomotor abilities in the previous season to make this a possibility where I'm not jumping in too soon, too specialized, where I have no opportunity for growth. You know, I look at the uh, you know, human performance as a pyramid. So at the bottom of the pyramid, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can do. And it doesn't mean like running 10, 400s or anything crazy like that, but a lot of different things that we can do to improve. And then once those things have been established, you know, that pyramid gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And the focus probably should be more narrow. But when they are first in the program, and especially just as a high school athlete, there's no reason to be very, very narrow with them unless there's some opportunity for them to win a state title at some point when they're with you. 
Have you seen that work adversely at all? Like maybe you, maybe you've, uh, maybe you, or you've talked to other coaches where you do kind of generalize the approach more and give more events or more opportunities to the person. <clears throat> and maybe they miss out on something like, for example, like you, we can't take Tony. I've not talked to Tony before, but I know some of his athletes to some extent, like, uh, you know, I think he references like Marcellus all the time. And, and I think he runs like the one in the 200 correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know, just using that type of example in this conversation, what if we kind of generalize that approach and Marcellus, for example, or some other athlete like that misses out on being very elite at a particular event? Um, does that ever like cross your mind? Have you seen that at all? Well, there's a lot that can be said there about the feed the cats and Tony and I debated it and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I would say um, with specifically Marcellus and feed the cats and Tony, that was the perfect kit for that system. He's a pretty short, very powerful, I believe a quad centric sprinter from what I've seen on film, um, explosive. That's a guy that's a cat. And so you would train him like a cat. Now for me in my program, cause I could speak to that at nauseum that for sure. Now that I've spread talent around, there are athletes in my program that are in my discipline, which is, you know, the 800 to the 100, depending on the type of athlete, more often 400 to 100, that probably aren't as good as they could be because we're not spending that much time. But at the end of the day, if we find that that is the most valuable thing for them and our program, then we will narrow that specialization down. I had a young lady, a different one, um, that was a senior this year. And she ended up being a sexual qualifier in long jump. And she hadn't really long jump until her, her junior season. And, and so going into the senior year, you know, that was going to become more of a focus. Um, and I think that we kind of prune that down, if you will, as we move through. So like the general approach becomes less general once we really have a clear picture on what they're good at. Or it could become more general just if we feel like they're so good at something else that we need to now try to make that manifest in a matter of three months and we need to start going that way. But because it's a hunch, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and not do some of those other key things that need to be done. And the one thing I think that's unfortunate with a kind of more of a minimalistic ideal about training is that people feel like less is more. And that's true that you don't want to overwhelm your athletes and you don't want to blow them up. But like sometimes people parcel out like, you know, okay, we're going to do only running drills on this day. And we're going to do max and velocity drills on this day. And then we're going to do weight room on this day. And it's like, well, you can do probably all of that in a single day. And so by doing that and making sure that your loads and your intensities are set up correctly, you can get a lot done. And even though it might be quote unquote general, it's still specific because every week they're competing in the event you know, and their menu of events drives what you're doing. And you adjust training based on volume, intensity, density, you know, based on what you're seeing. And so, yeah, there is a concern. But what I want it to be now in my program is I want me to be the one who's making that sacrifice because I want my other events to be great. Like full disclosure, we stink at Parkway Central on the girls program in the pole vault and the high jump. Those are both vertical jumps. There must be something going on there in my program. So like this year, there was this whole like project five, five and project 11 feet. 
Like we were doing everything we could to find somebody to break our school records in those events because those are the two events. Well, we have the pole vault record, but it's not great. But the high jump record is the only one left that we haven't beaten. And so those athletes need to be spending time over there. They need to be specific because obviously our approach, which is great for everything horizontal, shot, horizontal jumps, sprints, hurdles, long distance. We've had state medalists and state champions and a bunch of that stuff. But in those vertical jumps, it's been pretty bad. And so that's something that as a program, honestly and openly, I have to address. So circling back to the, you mentioned like less is more and whatnot. Do you find, you know, just kind of shooting in the dark here, do you find perhaps that the gender differences can help with that too? Um, just in terms of like volume, do you find that your female athletes might be a little more res- uh, resilient and prefer that kind of volume while you get some of these guys, uh, you know, on the, on the men's side that might be a little less tolerant of the loading and the volume that would require a multi-event approach for them? Do you kind of get where I'm going with that? So there's two ways to look at it. One is social right? So like if a female athlete believes in you and trusts you, they will literally bust through a wall for you for four years. Where a guy athlete, in my experience, and I, you know, I coach football and we went to the state title. I was a strength and conditioning coach for that program that when they were freshmen, they were one, six and one. And by the time they were all seniors and we didn't have a lot of guys in our squad. So they all started. We went to the state championship, monumental improvements. So there is a difference. There's no doubt. But like the guys will test you every year. You know, it's like, well, wait, I read this. I heard this. Why aren't we doing this? You know, and it's kind of the nature that that challenge is very natural. And I know that people listening to this podcast get uncomfortable when we talk about the differences of gender. But you know, I, I live in the real world. There are differences. Testosterone and estrogen have consequences. So not only in personality, but in performance. So the other part of it, part two, is the fact that sometimes the more successful female athletes might be more resilient because they have to be more resilient. It takes them longer to complete an event at the same elite status. So a man in the state of Missouri is going to win the state title if they run 408. They're going to win. A young lady in Missouri is going to win the state title if they run 450 anything, pretty much. So you're talking about a 50-second difference. What does that mean? That means for the female athlete, all the way down to the 100-meter dash, there's a slightly more aerobic or lactic issue that has to be overcome to reach the highest levels of performance. And then of course, as we know, as an athlete gets better, it becomes less and less aerobic and becomes more and more anaerobic. And that doesn't mean your training needs to match that because one of the things is like, well, if you're saying that the 800 is 50% anaerobic and aerobic, then all my training, you know, 50% of it should be aerobic and 50% should be anaerobic. Not necessarily because all three energy systems, creatine, phosphate, glylytic, and aerobic, are all running simultaneously. Exactly. Yeah. One is just predominant, right? So I have not changed what I do for males and females in terms of prescription, minus one big thing. And that one big thing is if we're doing minutes, You know, the women are going to be doing less time on their feet, okay, for sure. And if we're doing meters, we're going to be doing slightly less meters or one or two less intervals because if they're doing intervals and you say, okay, the female athlete's going to do 10 and the guy's going to do 10, 
Well, for the female, that's 20% more possibly load under tension because it takes them anywhere from 10 to 20%. I know that's a random number, but that it takes them to complete that workout. You know, they're going to be that much more under stress than a dude. And so I feel like personality type wise, there's a little bit to that. And I feel like biologically, there's absolutely something to that. But for me, I err on the side of my female athletes are actually going to be doing a little bit less, even if they might be quote unquote more resilient. Interesting. Okay. So did you listen to, I don't know if you listened to this, uh, Ross Jeff's podcast with uh, Joel Smith on Just Fly like a couple of weeks ago. No, I have not, but I love Joel. I, yeah, I yeah. like to listen to those things. Yeah, Joel's, Joel's the man. Um, so Ross is a, a coach, sprints and jumps coach at Aspire, I think in like the Middle East somewhere or something like that. Yeah, okay. And um, he kind of was breaking down his sprinters. He's working with elite sprinters into different buckets. And, you know, you have your concentric, which would for you I think would be like that quad dominant. You watch them run, you know, that kind of Correct. thing. We have our, uh, our elastic guys. And then he has like a third category, which is your metabolic guys who are going to specialize a little bit more in the speed endurance component end of the, of the spectrum. And he was just talking about how various volumes, particularly for concentric sprinters, you might want to like have volumes be lower just because they don't respond very well to them um, through the course of a season. If you, if you tend to like err on the side of higher volumes. And I was just kind of wondering um, he didn't specify between gender, but just as a follow up to that, I was just kind of wondering if you see anything like in terms of that with like are more guys, pushers than girls and therefore maybe you adjust volumes based off of that or or anything like that it might be completely general but I was just curious so it's interesting because like if you see a baby squat they tend to squat better than an adult and of course yeah. you know there's some things there because bone structures and things that are not not completed yet so that's kind of one of those funny things where they say we learn things wrong but we do model you know and so what I've found often is because a lot of your fast elite sprinters tend to be in like football or basketball where there's just acceleration after acceleration after acceleration and then a quick stop and a short burst and we're done. And I think it has more to do with not necessarily the pattern that they're using to fire, but just the, their history as an athlete that was so acceleration dominant. One of the things you'll notice with a quad centric sprinter and I would agree that they probably do need less volume because their body takes so, so much more wear and tear. It's not so much on the day that I'm concerned about. It's on the day after and the next day. And what do you do in the recovery modalities? Because they're pushing it. It's a much less um, groove-based, rhythm-based action. It's much more of a deliberate forced action. And that's one of the reasons why you'll find a lot of quad-dominant sprinters are great indoors, you know, 60 meter dash. They all look big and buff because guess what? They probably were football players. You know, that's how they were fast and explosive um, versus a hamstring centric sprinter that tends to be leaner, longer. And, you know, with female athletes, they don't have football, you know, as one of the sports. So how do they learn how to accelerate? Well, it's probably playing soccer and so they tend to accelerate and then run for a really long period of time and continue to run. And so what you find is some of your, you know, elite women, uh, especially in America, Caucasian women that are really fast, have a soccer background versus, you know, dudes where it's more football based and all this kind of stuff. Now, that being said, we model what we see. So if we're a kid, even though we've never played football, and we're a female, but we've spent a lot of time in summer track watching what other people do. They might pick up on that 
those movement patterns and become quad dominant. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is, and we can get into the, the metabolic athletes as well, but Jonas in Britain, who's a disciple of Dan Path, prefers that the sprinter is a hamstring-centric sprinter. And the reason why is they can run the 100, the 200, they recover better, and it's the, it's the more proper biomechanic um, execution that we want to see at high speeds. Because when you're at high speeds, you can't push on the ground as much. Your contact time becomes less and less and less, and it has to be more of a responsive and reactive process. And then we talk about our glylytic athletes. Those are people that are really fast, but they probably aren't a C, C type of the actin-3 gene. They're probably the CT, which is that middle road. And even though the actin-3 gene is really important, they probably have other things like their ability to buffer lactates probably better. Their ability to recover musculature might be better. They might have um, a heart rate that's naturally lower than others. You know, they might have a lung capacity that is trainable. And that's, and I know I'm going into the weeds here, but that's one of the things that Epstein talked about in his, his yeah, 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 yeah. sports gene, that some people are just really trainable. And so based on their experience, based on what their biology allows them to do. And this weird set of genes has set them up to be really great in those particular mailboxes, either concentric, eccentric, or, um, you know, uh, metabolic. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and, you know, I think a lot about Christian Coleman and how he can dominate a 60. And obviously he's incredible at the 100 as well. Like we're not taking that away, but where where is, a you know, a possibility of him getting run down? It's in the last 30 of that 100, right? You know, I mean, that's where someone who might be a fast metabolic sprinter, um, Joel did a great job. You should really check out that podcast, actually. The, um, the, the write-up he did of it as well, he gives some examples of sprinters. And fortunately, he was able to put, and I can't remember the names now, I apologize. It was, the, it was a woman, women's 100 a few years ago, and he was able to find a metabolic 100-meter sprinter, pair it up with a elastic or a more concentric elastic, kind of a hybrid sprinter, and you watch that metabolic sprinter almost run her down in the last 30. It was pretty impressive to see just the different running styles and how that metabolic sprinter can come on at the end of that 100 and almost, you know, steal the win. So pretty. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, Christian Coleman is a great example, even though he's not a, a big dude, you know, per se, but he definitely is a quad dominant, quad centric. In fact, you can even see like if you're looking straight on at a quad dominant sprinter you will see that leg contort laterally out and in much more than you see a hamstring centric sprinter where the knees and everything seem to be much more in line. And there doesn't seem to be as much of a twist off of each and every stride. I had a picture in my um, podcast that I or a debate that I did with Tony where we were comparing these two in terms of are they hamstring and quad centric. And I had my buddy uh, Craig Pickering who actually wrote for my book who's a very much a quad. I mean, he looks like he should be a fullback in the NFL. He is a freaking stout individual. And you can see the compression of his leg. There's this big compression. The leg is contorted. And meanwhile, you know, Usain Bolt, who's the best of all time, who happens to be a hamstring-centric guy, is way up off the ground. And again, they were at different phases in their stance, but way up off the ground and the legs are moving through in a much straighter direction. And so it's really interesting when you see that now Christian 
Pullman also had a really good 200 meter dash. Yeah. But interestingly, the quad dominant sprinters, just like they don't like the volume of work, they also tend to not gravitate to the 200 very frequently. The most recent one, in my opinion, that's close to that is, is Justin Gatlin. Yeah. That he's really good at both. And I feel like he's more quaddy dominant, but he might be a hybrid if you really wanted to get into it. But him and Christian have very similar start patterns. 100%. Yeah, 100%. That's, yeah, it's fascinating stuff, man. I, I've really gotten into just watching this play out and just, dude, YouTube's hilarious. Like, you just try to try to not double click and then pause it and you're trying to scroll back. <laughs> I, need, I need to get better at technology so I actually download this shit and actually. Right. Know. Right. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, man, this is great. I, I'm going to pivot a little bit, though. Um, okay. I haven't I literally gotten to none of the questions <laughs> that, I have, uh, that, I, that I prepared for you. But um, I, I was curious. Um, I have started uh, – I, I kind of started out in the game thinking very short to long based. Um, but over time and kind of observing – I'm working with a couple uh, – yeah, at the spot I'm at right now, we have a couple NBA pre-draft guys working with us. Um, I've spoken a lot to a few guys at Wake Forest that are doing a bit more of a long to short approach on things, given the accelerative nature of basketball, like you mentioned. Um, And, you know, to me, I always kind of thought, you know, along the lines of like a lot of people aren't very good at accelerating. Like, let's just get them going there. It doesn't have to be the fastest they've ever done. Let's just build some good acceleration mechanics. But I'm also starting to look on the back end of it and going, well, we're not smooth once we open up at all. And being smooth when we open up and go a little bit longer distances, even in basketball, is probably going to be very helpful just for basic coordination, timing, rhythm, all that sort of stuff. So I've started more kind of thinking about trying to put the two together. And, and here where we are right now, we don't even do much acceleration with these guys. It's mostly just once a week we let them open up for 100, you know, some 100-meter tempos and stuff like that uh, just to get them out of the gym and, and shake things up. So it's very curious. I, I know you lean more to the long to short side, if I'm not mistaken. I just wanted to kind of get your overall thoughts on – on that and then what you do on the short side uh, while you focus more on the long short. Well, I am going to you just a little bit. I'm more of what we call a concurrent guy, um, which okay. is okay. godfathered by a, an Australian coach named Mike Hurst. And then we've kind of twisted that into this thing called the uh, critical mass system. Now to, to clarify that we try to meet people where they're at. And so we try to base our training around the specifics of the sport in which they're doing. So like basketball players and soccer players have a lot in common other than the fact that basketball players are turning around a lot quicker um, than, than soccer players are. Soccer players get to kind of run it out a little bit more. But one of the things that I've, I've found is, look, there's a lot. So first thing is, yeah, you might not be running at full speed in basketball over a hundred meters. Cause that's just, you'd be on, you'd be in the, you know, fifth row or whatever of the stadium. But absolute speed, the faster your absolute speed is, the easier it is to run submaximally and the higher the ceiling becomes of submaximal speed. And that's that idea of the feed the cats, Tony holler, get that thing up to speed. But on the flip side, that the sport is also incredibly aerobic. And how do you elicit some of those fatigue principles that an athlete feels in competition and push the wall off? Well, you know, it becomes really uncomfortable to do the suicides up and down the basketball court all the time. And I know that that might feel more sport specific, but I'd much rather spend less time doing that. And I can get you into that state 
by running a 350-meter run. And you only have to do one of them. And then it's over, you know? And so sometimes that might be a more efficient way of doing it. Um, I also believe that if you look at some of these people, they're just not fit, you know? And so they've never had that wall approach them. They've never had to push that wall away and still perform at a high rate of speed, be sharp, um, being able to have a high sports IQ under fatigue. And it's not like let's run them into the ground. I want to go fast, but I want to go fast for a long period of time. You know, this idea of sprinting 10s and 20s is great, but that might not be what you do in the sport. So you need to address that too. So where I kind of developed this philosophy of how I attack that is from uh, Andreas, uh, who's the coach down at, at Altus. And he talks about like in the off season, we want to work on weaknesses, things that they might not be doing that much. So yeah, it might be awesome to get your flying 20 up in the off season. And you probably should do some of that, but you also should probably attack whatever is the weakness that you might have. So if you're not fit, quote unquote, fit for the sport, because there's different fitness for different sports, then we need to attack that. That's an issue. If you seem to be constantly getting jammed up and cross over because your first two steps aren't good or you're not able to make the break, you know, on a fast break and get in the position, well, then when we're in the regular season, then we want to work on those things, you know, and the reverse would be true if you're not good at that. So, like, you look at the guy um, who's with the Peng, uh, the Pelicans, Zion, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, it's almost like it's criminal that they let the dude get out of shape, you know, and you can run lots of repeat tens and twenties. But the problem is, is that aerobically body composition wise, you're going to run into a problem because I know a lot of big dudes. I mean, they always, the big, you know, myth out there about powerlifting is that powerlifters or Olympic lifters have like the best standing 10 in the world in terms of times, you know? And it's like, yeah, but then what can they do after 10 meters? Probably nothing. You know, and that's not what the, the sport is for basketball or for football or for track. You got to go farther than that. And so there's a lot of value in going longer. Then the third thing is psychologically, like if you never rip off the Band-Aid, you never go there. You're never going to get past it. And it's not like, oh, we have to do, uh, oh God, what's the, the Murph or whatever that thing is yeah, that yeah, the yeah, CrossFit yeah, yeah. guys do, which yeah. is just like insane. You know, there was a coach that had his dudes do that. And one of the dudes took like four hours or something like yeah, I that. Saw, I saw that actually. That was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I feel, and I actually reached out to that guy and I was like, Hey man, like if you want to talk training, because oh, yeah, all these guys are trash. I was like, what a yeah. nice, what a nice guy. You were the only <laughs> one that wasn't just kidding all over him. <laughs> well, because that's what we should be doing. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, Hey man, like, and if you don't want to talk to me, you cuss me out or whatever. Well then that's on you. But at least I said, hey, I'm here to help. You're enthusiastic. You want something cool for your guys. You want something great. There's another way to do that and still get the things done. It might not be a minimalistic approach, but there could be something a way farther into the left of that sliding scale that we yeah. could go and still you, get things you done. You went way off the deep end there, bro. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 And he did. But the point is, is like, and this is one of the things that was brought up in the debate with Tony too. He's like, do you tell me that my guys don't work hard? Is that what you're telling me? And I'm like, no, they, they're working hard, but hard work is relative. 
you know, when you first get to third grade or second grade and you see division for the first time, division in math class, that's hard. Like you're like, what the heck? And then when all of a sudden they throw in algebra and now there's not numbers, but there's letters. You got letters in this shit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was so mad. I was like offended. I was like, are you kidding me all my life? I've never seen letters in math and now you're throwing them in. I was so, I was so turned off. And I it just like, I used to be good at math until that point. Cause I was just like, I made a choice. Like, Oh, get this. This is stupid. Well, guess what? Then it screwed me up through all of my high school and my ACT because I had to play catch up because I just refused to go <laughs> to an area and get past, quote unquote, the tough part. Yeah. And eventually, if you keep driving down that road and keep striving, you're going to run into calculus. You're going to run into quantum physics. You're going to run into these things, which are most people would say are incredibly hard. But if you never push to the wall, the wall will always stay there. And what's really odd about it, and I've done my, you know, masters on this in positive psychology is the wall becomes bigger. It becomes psychologically bigger. It becomes a bigger threat. It becomes a bigger concern. So for me, it's like, you know what? I'm pushing you off the cliff. You're going into the water and you're going to realize the water's deep enough and you're going to survive and it's going to be okay. I'm pushing you out of the nest. You're going to learn to fly. At some point, we got to rip that bandaid off and get past that. And well, so from, and, yeah. you know, I Keep it all re like rel you talked about how everything's relative on this. For some kids, that cliff might be three feet. Correct. And then next time it'll be five feet. And then so on. I like this analogy. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean that more is better just because it's like I'm telling you that it's like, oh, well, Bant is this long to short guy or concurrent guy. That means I should go out here and run 16 200s with my short concentric sprinter. No, 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 no. <laughs> it just means that maybe they run a 350 one of them and then they go run some 80s you know afterwards you know and maybe that's only once a week or maybe they race it and you race them into shape because you can get a better effort out of them than putting it into your training plan where they might just dog the whole practice and so strategically you got to know the mental stuff your kids got you got to know their abilities based on testing you got to know what you do and what it does the response on the body. You got to know what type of athlete they are. You know, there's so many things, but you can make it sound like it's really complex, but a lot of it is just simple addition, subtraction, and adjustment, you know, off of your base. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you take it back to the team sports side of things. And I think this is, this is critical because if you never get to that wall, like even you use the Zion example, all of a sudden now we're in a position where everything becomes compromised because you push them to a wall in competition as opposed to easing them through a series of walls in preparation for for the event or for the sport or anything like that. So yeah, I, I love that, man. I, I really do. I think I, you know, I've definitely come a long way from thinking short to long is the only way. Um, I think a lot, I think it, I think it certainly can work when we go back to this concentric example, when we talk about football, for things like that, I get it because outputs are king in those particular sports and events and whatnot. But at the same time, like you said, the, uh, you know, phosphor creatine, the uh, oxygen, I mean, they're inextricably linked. We have to be able to repeat these efforts over and over again, with the exception being if you're like a hundred meter sprinter or something like that. Well, and if you're being really smart about it, the, again, the aerobic part of it becomes less important because you are getting in shape 
specifically. So there's a fitness, right? There's a fitness, there's a robustness. It's not about aerobically fit, but it's like, now I sprint that hard and that fast over that distance. The 20 doesn't seem as hard because I can maintain it for 50, 60, 40, 80 yards, whatever it may be. And I can do it over and over and over again, just under sub max, where now I'm a monster. You know, when they talk about, and he was on the track football consortium, but Coach Kula, and he talks about his time with Christian McCaffrey and how they run a bunch of routes. Well, you're telling me that if he's running down the field and running repeat routes at full speed, there isn't an aerobic component? Of course there's an aerobic component. Of course. But he's gotten to that point where he's fast and he's enduring. He can repeat that performance over and over and over again because guess what? Team sports, that has to happen. You have to be able to be super fast and fit. So how do you balance that out? You can't balance it out by totally nerfing training and going short, 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 short. There has to be, and again, it's relative to a 400-meter dash athlete running repeat 60s seems really short. But to a football player, that is the wall, that is the tough that repeat effort of the two minute drill and running a bunch of crazy routes out of the backfield. And then also having the maintain the football IQ to be able to make the plays, make the cuts, make the catches. You have to have a certain level of fitness. It's just specific fitness. And with Zion, you know, people talk about, well, don't go run mileage. No, I would never suggest to anyone to run mileage if you're a basketball player, because that's not specific endurance. You know, you want specific endurance for basketball. And if you're like, but if you're running slow or you're doing this slow, then you're going to wire in slow. Yes, if that's all that you do. And that's the only thing that you do. But what I'll tell you what will make you really slow is if you're, no offense, Zion, I think you're a great guy and a great basketball player, good dude. So don't be mad at me if you end up hearing this. But if you're carrying 50 pounds of fat, fat makes you slow too. You know, (laughs) and so for some of our athletes, they've got to do some of this work to maintain body composition because we pretend that everybody's got a perfect diet. They don't. We pretend that everybody's going to eat the right food or that their genetics are just going to shred fat naturally. It doesn't happen for everybody. So we as coaches have to apply and prescribe training to the sport first and foremost to what's required in the championship and then what are those athletes' abilities, genetics, et cetera? That's the hierarchy of how you prescribe. Yeah, and I, that McCaffrey example is a great one, I think, because, I mean, what's the bulk of what he was doing? A lot of it was shorter distance technical development of acceleration. Uh, you know, I'm sure it got longer as the year went on because you need to be able to, again, sustain a certain amount of volume at high speeds when you get, you know, the, the nature of the NFL just – dumb <laughs> like right. when you when you get back to training camp so but that 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 was still a component like you said running through some repeat effort drills like that that was still a component of the training from everything I've read about it I haven't seen the guy present but that was certainly something that struck me as interesting yeah yeah um so uh Zion by the way is the number one listener of the upper left performance podcast <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. the show is brought to you by the Swoopy King Arania in New Orleans, actually. Um, but, but, uh, oh, man. But, okay, do you have a little more time? I know we hit an hour, yeah, but I have a few more 100%, questions. man. Okay. I can talk forever, dude. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. All right, so um, one little uh, side note, and this can be a pretty quick one. 
Uh, do you do any wicket, wicket stuff in your training, any wicket drills at all? Yeah, so first of all, I really like it as a middle of a passive recovery activity. So I was training a dude who was post-collegiate who was trying to be a really, really good 400-meter runner. He actually has the Division Two, I think, decathlon record or pentathlon. I, I forget. if He might have both. He might have the indoor one wow. and the outdoor one. But anyway, the recoveries are so long that you get really stagnant and you get tight because the longer you go, that's the thing too. Like that's where a lot of coaches who are maybe critical of the longer stuff is that they're not patient enough to provide the space in between reps and practice to create the effort that is still relatively really fast and event specific. But in the interim, in the middle, what I like to do is I like to get the athletes up. So if it's a 15 minute recovery period, I like to get the athletes up and do some buildups. With this athlete, he was a hurdler. So he had that kind of hurdle rhythm and we're doing 400 hurdles. So I like to do the wickets as a middle of a passive recovery activity. Now research has shown if you get the athletes up and you do something that's not really fatigable, but stimulative in the middle of a long passive recovery session, the next interval, the next effort, will mimic a higher rate of quality to the previous effort. Nice. So I love it there. Um, I will mess with it if I see an athlete that has something funky that is inhibiting their ability to cover in terms of stride length. So like with the young lady I told you about, and I haven't actually said her name, but her name is Ellie Liebman, who is our school record holder in the long jump. She overstrided. So not only did we cue, spin, 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 turnover, 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 push the foot down, we also had her run over wickets that were at reduced space to shorten up the stride as a stimulative mental exercise to get her there. And, you know, certainly all the, you know, she went from running, you know, high 12s to mid 12s, you know, just with that little bit of a change in the 100. And she's not a 100 meter specialist by any means, she's a jumper. On the flip side, we have a young lady in my program right now um, who's a freshman who nobody knows about, but could be a beast. And she has the tiniest little stride ever, and she has a lot of backside action. And so we would definitely, if we would have had the chance beyond two weeks of the track season before COVID, we would have used that and spread her out and had her over stride as a cue. And then what you do with wickets is I don't like to it's exclusively, I like to use it as a mental progression. So if I'm doing maximum velocity, I like to do drop-ins. I like to do bench drops. You know, if I could pull, I would pull. I like to run with the wind, fly-ins. But then we'll also do the wickets as well. And so you can create like a module where you might do a drop, you know, a bench drop, a max velocity, and then a wicket you know, and you kind of stair-step all these different things to give them different skills over maximum velocity that they have to tolerate. And that would be like a set. And you might only do three sets of those at 20 or 30 meters a pop. Oh, cool. You know? Yeah, yeah. And like that, that. Yeah. And so you got to construct your workout like you would construct a lesson plan. And so you've got to have that goal in mind for what they need. And that's what's kind of cool because, you know, kids can set up their own wickets and you can kind of adjust and have them drop in and run over a few but that's where I use them the most often is to fix an issue. 
if I don't feel like their mechanics are too much of an issue, then I, I, I leave it alone. And I plan on like with that girl that was the 800 meter runner, she had this skitter scatty stride, but we just kept improving her over time. And we also implemented a lot of low level, low intensity plyometrics. So even though like the length of her stride visually might've not looked that much bigger, her impulse and bounce became a lot bigger. So she was able to cover more ground because the lift off was so much larger. She actually had, she actually had flight time. <laughs> yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so that's something you got to pay attention to too. And that's why it's so fun. The puzzle of figuring all of these things out and you like, you know, your dad in the garage probably had a big, huge toolbox, right? And all this different stuff. My dad did several, too. Several. Yeah. yeah. And there's some <laughs> tools you never needed to touch, but you knew how to use them and you knew that they were there. And the one time you come across that problem, you implement that tool. And to some coaches that are new, they would look at that toolbox and be like, oh my God, you know, me mechanical engineering or, or messing with the car. This is, this is too much. I'll never be able to do this. And it's like, well, yeah, because all you've ever used is a screwdriver and a hammer and some pliers. But if you practice and you get more handy, this you can have more tools that will way cut down yeah. on the learning time for the athlete or the project you're trying to make in your garage. So I really liked the stimulative thing you mentioned at the beginning of all this, too. Um, cause I actually do a lot of sprinting now, a lot more than lifting. I'm over lifting. I'm tired of it. It's boring. <laughs> and, uh, and so like, I, I've just started to train a lot more like a sprinter over the last year, especially, um, one thing I have noticed, cause I will take, you know, some extensive rest periods. Um, I try to keep, I try to not have, it's just interesting. It's not observation. I, if I have my phone with me, I start looking at the phone. It's not helpful at all. Like it right. just completely takes you out of your, your mind frame, like what's going on. But, you know, luckily I'm here in Santa Barbara. So I, I'm, I get to work out up at uh, Westmont college in Montecito. I don't know if you know that or not, but it is okay. incredible. I'll send you a picture after this. It's like the most beautiful track in the world, right on the mountains, the oceans right on the other side. It's ridiculous. Oh man, that sounds uh, awesome. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. So like, you know, now I'll actually honestly just try to focus on just kind of expanding my peripheral vision maybe not thinking about what's to come on the next set of, of, of work or anything like that, but just getting your mindset and finding something stimulating rather than just staring at uh, what Drudge Report's telling me about the coronavirus and how terrible <laughs> my life is. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, just interesting, interesting to think about. I really like that. Well, so with that too, like um, actually Joe Rogan just had a guest on where he talked about focus in the eyes like and it was really, uh, for pun intended, an eye-opening <laughs> listen, you know. But um, he talked about how, like, when we're engaged in a really aggressive activity, you know, our vision narrows down, you know, to where we're moving forward towards the thing we're trying to attack. When we're more relaxed and we're more in that chill mode, that's where we notice all these other things and our experience becomes more vivid. So like you should never go to an art gallery angry, you know, there's a whole probably a lot of reasons not to do that, but, but you're not going to get the visual experience that you want. You're not going to get the auditory experience that you want. And the other thing I oftentimes talk to my athletes about, cause like if you have a state championship or a travel out of town, like the dudes will bring video game systems. And I'm like, that's the worst thing you can do because you're frying your central nervous system 
that much more. It is all hand-eye coordination, twitch, 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 quick, 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 quick stuff. And that's what you need to reserve and hold on to for tomorrow when you've got to really focus in and there's all these actions that are going quick. You want to do everything you can to not load that CNS, even if it's something as simple as putting down Fortnite for a night or two. I found when I'm in the weight room or back in the day, many moons ago, when I used to run on a regular basis, that I don't, yeah, the phone is, is a huge issue, not only because it's distracting, but because you're staring at a glowing screen and then your eyes have to adjust to the environment around you, right? And that screen is really bright for you to look at in the sunlight, which also, you know, if you're out in Cali, could be really bright as well, but it's just that adjustment of the eyes. It takes you from close to horizon. That's not good. I'd much rather walk around with my hands on my hips, sweating, breathing hard, and observing the things around me, the trees, the plants, the animals. And again, why? Because I don't need to keep loading my central nervous system with this really intense, real focused activity of looking, even though people think that's passive, it's a very narrow thing that you're looking at. And typically you're looking at stuff that pisses you the hell off. You know, like <laughs> yeah. Nothing's half the good. people. Nothing good's on a phone. Come on. <laughs> right. So half the people that heard Drudge Report are like, I'm never listening to this guy again. <laughs> he listens to that guy, you know? And it's like, who cares? But that's, that's what that is. And for us in our practice, there are no phones allowed. Now, when we go on trips, I used to take the cell phones. That became such a problem. That's too much of a battle. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much of a battle. But what we, because it's part of their routine now. So what we do instead is we spend the whole entire year trying to teach going to sleep habits. Pre-day, you know, sleep night, you know, competitive, good study habits, good study environment. You know, we try to create that for the athlete. When we go off trips and we travel, it's a business trip. You know, there are all these different types of things that we build in, like this is what's got to happen. We have our athletes do a 24-hour psychological tape, which you and I can talk about, which is a really cool thing. Um, but those are things to kind of help us. But it's amazing what the technology will do if you're not careful and in a really, really negative way. Plus, it's dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. So you're, you're having a hard time pulling away from it because that's making you feel really good right now as opposed to getting back in lane one and feeling miserable for about 20 seconds. <laughs> Yeah, uh, one, other, one other quick track question, too. What, thoughts on warming up? Do you do it? If you do it, what are you doing? I, I'm kind of – I'm down the path of anti-warm-up these days, or at least – it's got to be stimulative. It can't be, you know, quad pulls and, you know, like whatever else is going on. So just, yeah, your overall take on warming up. Well, I'm not a big fan of slow um, movements, knee squeezes and things like that. We do – have a couple of those things in, in our warm-up. Um, but you're talking to the, the running drill guy, the warm-up guy, the, the guy who does a lot. So I actually have a, a B package. We have a dynamic day, a static day. We have uh, two drills packages for bio, uh, biomechanics, an A and a B. And we have the same thing for our flexibility suppleness. So that's a thing. And then on top of that, I have three or four phases of warm-ups that I do. And so, again, kind of the uh, yin to Tony's yang in terms of warm-ups, you know, he'll get his workouts done in 45 minutes. My warm-up might 
take 45 minutes and that might that freaks people out when they hear it yeah but you got there's a lot of recovery in there there's a lot of built-in rest you know we're not going 45 minutes straight you know there's different activities there's different box getting ticked off as we go through you know in terms of what we're trying to do i like to use my warm-up not only to build um the little articulations of muscles around the joints that don't often get worked on um i like to over emphasize certain firing patterns and then on top of that the most important thing is the warm-up provides the mechanoreceptors to get the athlete primed and then we also can catch injuries so if a kid comes out and they don't share with you that they're hurt or something's wrong with them or anything like that and then all of a sudden you know you see that they're wincing off a leg or there's not the same amplitude from one leg to another you know, you got kids that are inherently grinders or tryhards, which is a term I really hate, but you do. And so you've got to manage that. And that's one of the best ways to get all of that stuff done. And people will be like, well, what does an A skip teach you about sprinting? Well, it teaches knee drive. It teaches getting your foot and your toe up, pulled to your big shin, you know, up to your shin. So like it overemphasizes those things. But when you go and completely put it in in that skill set, and then more importantly, some of those goofy movements, they might not appear on a regular basis, but if it happens in the hallway or in gym class or, you know, at home, you know, you're likely to survive a very uncomfortable, weird body position, and it won't lead to a catastrophic injury. So I feel like those are all really good things. And really that's one of the things that for me too, that I see a lot of coaches will just kind of let their athletes go through the motions. And that's like when I feel like I'm doing the most coaching is doing that. And I try to pick out every phase of a drill that we have a kid. I try to pick out a different kid in a different row that's doing the drill, right? I will pull kids out, you know, do the whole John Wooden plus minus plus, you know, show them the right way, show them what they did wrong, show them the right way again. Let's get going. You know, and there's a lot there, but it's because it covers everything. And one of the things I pride myself on is the fact that we've only had three hamstring pulls in the last 10 years wow. and in our entire program. That's now, really I coach, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, I coach female, you know, female athletes in Missouri, but still, that's a really, really low number. And I feel like it's because we properly address the, what I would call, fail points in a person's body through this progressive general warm-up, general suppleness or dynamic, general biomechanics, neural warm-up, and then the meat and potatoes of what we do, and then cool down, weight room, you know, and everything is planned out in a way to build off the previous phase so that there's very little delayed onset of muscle soreness where it's like, hey, you know, we've been benching, you know, for six months, and now I'm going to have you go throw stones over a wall or something, you know, and it's like, well, those aren't the same. I'd rather have you bench than go to a stability ball and bench or do dumbbell bench or do velocity based training bench or do a French contrast system to the bench. Those will lead to progressions without doms. Yeah. So we do the same thing with our warm-up. So um, obviously I think you've made it pretty clear throughout this entire podcast that you're communicating constantly with these, these girls and you're really trying to establish like good holistic life skills 
which I think is, is critical. Um, being a, you know, history teacher in high school, I'm sure you've seen like the evolution of kids and, you know, over the last, you know, 19, 20 years, like you'd said. Um, I was just kind of curious, like your overall thoughts on that, like where, where kids are at these days and what we need to do to kind of facilitate uh, just making them healthier overall. Not that they're necessarily unhealthy now, but just in general. Well, first of all, you know, we can't be worried about making people feel bad by making them run a mile in middle school. You know, they do the beep test or the pacer, you know, because the mile makes people feel bad. We can't feel bad about giving kids B's or C's in PE if they're just not very good at PE. Just because you show up and you participate should not give you an A. You know, I showed up to chemistry class, you know, after all these letters and stuff started showing up in math and I didn't get to go, well, you know, I'm not really good at it, so give me an A. You know, I had to fight tooth and nail for a B, you know, and I was really proud of that B in chemistry. Like that meant way more to me. Those are things. I think high school kids should have to do PE for four years. I think it should be mandatory or they have to participate in a physical extracurricular activity. They can get out of it. But if they don't do one while they're in high school, they're going to four years of PE, especially if you consider the fact that we have now a somewhat nationalized medicine, even though, you know, the politics of what we got going on and all we have that. So if all of us are paying the taxes for that, then we need to do everything we can to keep these kids healthy. Getting away from the screens. I think that if there's anything that was proven through this whole entire COVID situation is that I'm a teacher, but I'm way better in class and students are way better in class as well. Mom and dad realize, holy cow, teachers really matter. And this is not easy to do via computer. Nothing <laughs> yeah, replaces. Yeah. yeah, you know. Um, I, I don't think kids, I mean, kids physically aren't that different from birth, but by the time they get to me in high school, they're very physically different. And that's because they don't, I mean, less and less people play sports, less and less people have physical activity. The one silver lining out of this COVID situation is that people were forced to like, they could only go outside to exercise. So it's like, guess what? Everybody's out walking their dog, walking with their family, playing in their yard. Neighbors are sitting on their driveway, watching the kids ride bikes and do stuff. And I, I laughed because I was like, oh, it's the 1980s all over. Yeah. Again. <laughs> That's what exactly what I told my uncle. I yeah. was like, this, this feels like it did when I was a kid. Like, yeah, you know? <laughs> and it really is, you know, and that's, it, it took a freaking pandemic to make people do what humans were meant to do which is to be outside and to get exercise. That's what we were meant to do. And lo and behold, vitamin D is one of the best things to fortify yourself against this thing. And it's so mentally important for kids to interact. It's so mentally important for kids to be frustrated and struggle. The brain, the plasticity of the brain doesn't get the alarm to improve, to become better, if you're not physically or emotionally stressed, stretched by a situation. Now, we don't want to break you, but you need to get to a point, recover, learn something from it, be physically and mentally tested. And sports provides that. Sadly, yeah. we just don't have that as much as we used to. Yeah, and, and I, I do think, and I, I hate to bring in like the, the, you know, the current events of the day, but I do think it is relevant. Um, 
just this COVID thing is scary. And what, I think it's great in one sense that we are getting kids. I, I think you are seeing more kids go outside and do stuff. But I'm also, you know, currently working with, with some kids at the spot that I'm at right now. And they're so bored. And right. that's so scary because I don't think we've like created opportunities for them to cultivate things on their own. Um, and so they don't know how to do it. And they're just so bored right now. And it's just like, Jesus is scary, you know? Yeah. They don't know how to pretend. No. <laughs> yeah, they don't. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know how to do that. It's like, well, go play with your stuff. Well, what do you mean? Why don't you play with me? I'm like, well, I'll play with you. But like, that's, that's not my permanent condition as, as dad, you gotta, you gotta figure these out, make your own little stories, play with your sister. And so as annoying as it might be for my daughters to pretend that they're cats, <laughs> at least they're, they're pretending and they're creating a, a little mystical world in their head. And, and I think it's also important for us to be bored, you know, like it's so hard to pull away from like, if I'm in the shower, I'm like, all right, cool. I can totally like crush the podcast right now and listen to this while I'm in the shower versus just being bored and thinking about things deeply in the shower, you yeah. know, or going yeah. to bed without my phone. You know, these are things that are challenges for adults and we have much more hardwired brains than the kids who have never been without. Yeah. So it's interesting. Yeah, no, Ryan, thank you so much, man. I really, I really do appreciate the time. This is, this has been awesome. Honestly, I thought, I thought we were going to end up going like two hours at one point yeah. just in, in a good way. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, anything you want to promote, any social media, your book, any other projects uh, have at it, my friend. Well, I mean, if you, you know, like what you heard here and you want a deep dive into the world of sprinting and, and sprint training, I do have a book called the sprinters compendium. You can find it on amazon.com or Vervante. Um, both um, can be sold inside the United States. It's, it's a large monstrous book. Um, it's 763 pages and it has over 50 contributing coaches. You can also find me, find me at uh, Twitter at Sprinters Compend because my darn title of my book is too long. It, you know, it maxed me out on characters, <laughs> but you can find me there. I also am on Facebook and Instagram. My Facebook is maxed out, but my Instagram is uh, Ryan.Banta. So I welcome all comers. Any questions? Love to talk about this stuff till I'm blue in the face. So bring it on. Ryan, thanks a lot, man. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, and I'm sure we'll be in touch and, and talking again soon. So thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Jack. It was a pleasure.